My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. What I want to know is just how could and just how should the world change after this pandemic? So that's the question I'm putting to leading experts. It feels like it's life and death for people's businesses, their jobs, their hopes for the future. Renowned thinkers. All you want is a hug, to be honest with you. If you're living alone in this era, there are no hugs. And global leaders. China and the United States are going to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. So I'm honoured to be joined today by Audrey Tang. Now, I know who you are, Audrey, in the sense that I consider you to be one of the most exciting and innovative policy thinkers in the world. But we have a largely British audience, and some of them may not be aware of you and the amazing stuff you're doing. So how would you introduce yourself, Audrey? Hi, I'm Audrey Tang. I'm Taiwan's Digital Minister in charge of social innovation. And I'm a conservative anarchist. I dropped out of junior high schools to start my own startup. And I'm a serial entrepreneur before retiring at 33 and then occupied the parliament and then became the digital minister. Well, that's a pretty intimidating <laughs> biography. Before we get into the question that we ask everyone on this podcast, I was fascinated to see that I think yesterday you were part of a major announcement by the Taiwanese government about the economic recovery. Can you tell us a bit more about what you announced? Sure. What we've done is essentially what we call the triple coupon, which is everybody who use a, I don't know, credit card or a online payment system or a debit card, they can just spend 3000 Taiwan dollars starting from mid-July, which is about 80 pound. And then a week afterward, they can go to an ATM and then get two thirds of that back. And so basically, it's a stimulus package designed to only make sure that people go out and spend instead of staying at home and participating in e-commerce. Because in order to get the cash back, you have to spend it in a way that is not e-commerce. That's really interesting and points to some of the things we'll be talking about. So let me ask you the question, Audrey Tang, which is the one we ask everybody on this podcast, which is, how do you think the world could and how do you think the world should change after this pandemic? Sure. I think the pandemic is a great amplifier and the world could change to become much more able to solve international scale issues because previously for climate change and other like infodemic, we have different timelines, different urgency in all parts of the world. But now we're either two months before or two months after each and every epicenter. And so there's a much stronger sense of solidarity. So what could happen is that we're now much more empowered to solve global scale issues. Now, I think what would happen is that it will amplify the various philosophies around data norms, around the norms of governance. So, for example, in Taiwan, we're a liberal democracy. We believe that data should be jointly controlled by the social sector. We will amplify that tendency. On the other hand, the more authoritarian or even totalitarian jurisdictions will probably also amplify that tendency. So, we are happy to work together to solve international scale problems, but the solution itself will probably look at the situation where people with very different governance philosophy being amplified by this pandemic. 
really interesting stuff to get into. But before we do that, I just want you to share with our listeners what has happened in Taiwan in relation to the pandemic. Because in almost every article I read about which countries have done well and which countries have done badly, there is some consistency. America and I'm afraid Britain nearly always appear in the list of countries that have done badly. And Taiwan always appears in the list of countries that have managed this well. So tell us a little bit about how you managed your response and why you think it's been so successful. So there's three pillars in our response. That's fast, fair, and fun. Fast means that we start responding last year. Many jurisdictions responded this year. And so last year, when Dr. Li Wenliang, the PRC whistleblower, posted on social media there, the SARS has happened again. It's trending on Taiwanese social media that day. And so the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, noticed that. And then the person called No More Pipe on the Taiwan equivalent of Reddit um, Instead of like Dr. Lee Wenliang, who got inquiries and eventually punishments, their message gets amplified. And we immediately start screening all passengers to health inspections flying from Wuhan to Taiwan the very next day, which is the first day of January. So this says that the civil society to trust the government enough to talk about new SARS outbreaks and the government trusts the citizen enough to take it seriously and treat it as if SARS has happened again because we've done yearly drills since 2003, which is SARS 1.0. So that's the fast part. The fair and fun part, respectively, ensure that everybody has plenty of medical mask supply. At the moment, if you're an adult, you get nine rationed masks at very cheap price every two weeks and 10 if you're a child. And you can additionally purchase a medical mask if you want, because we have now produced, I think, 20 million medical masks a day and giving them out also to international humanitarian aid. And finally, the fun part is about humor versus rumor. Instead of relying on takedowns, we rely on cute spokesdogs and many other mimetic uh, ways to make sure that the clarifications gets even more viral than conspiracy theories. And so the conspiracy theory would have an R0 value less than one and our clarification memes, which is very funny, has a R0 value of above one. And that's how we counter the infodemic part of the pandemic. So to what extent, Audrey, let's try and separate out the elements of this which are contingent to your own national experience. So the fact that you've had to deal with pandemic in the past, and so you're aware of it and your proximity to China. Now, those are particular characteristics. And so in a sense, if I was comparing Taiwan with Britain, I might say, in excuse for Britain, well, we haven't really had to deal with pandemics and we're further away from China. But there are also elements of Taiwan and its response, which are much more generic. And in particular, the way you're approach to technology and to citizens, which is that you are a country which uses technology very extensively, but does it in a way which engages and empowers citizens as innovators and actors within the technological system. That's exactly right. So I will use two very simple technologies to illustrate. One is called telephone landline, and one is called uh, television, <laughs> and also live streaming. So these two combine together in Taiwan, make sure that everybody who have an idea for the Central Epidemic Command Center, which always holds a live streamed televised press conference uh, 2 p.m. every day for more than four months now, they can get the calls from this hotline 1922. Everybody can just call it and see their great idea become tomorrow's policy on the 2 p.m. live press conference. For example, in April, there was a young boy 
whose family or friend called one nine two two and say, "Hey, our boy didn't want to go to school because all we had is pink medical mask. Because when you're Asian, you don't get to pick the color." And he said that he will get bullied or laughed at by the peers at school. And the very next day, everybody in the CCC press conference, including our health minister, start wearing pink medical mask, and social media painted everything pink. And、uh, that makes sure that the gender mainstreaming, which is social innovation, gets amplified. And with more cases like this, people are much more willing to call one nine two two. And share the ideas. Is that something that you particularly have brought to the Taiwanese government? That approach to technology, that combination of a commitment to the scope that technology has to bring change about, but also to make it fun to involve citizens. Was that something that has deep roots in Taiwanese culture, or is it something that you particularly brought because you're such an, an innovative figure yourself? No, it's not about me, but it is about the sunflower occupy. Though before the sunflower occupy in March 2014, like in 2013, if you ask a random person on the street whether people can participate in day-to-day democracy, whether anybody with a good idea can do an e-petition and, for example, ban the plastic straws, that's from a 16-year-old who started a petition, or whether it's a going to be a daily press conference that takes you know ask me anything attitude with a journalist, people would look at you like you're crazy, right? And so the occupy. Occupy really changed our political culture because everybody see with half a million people on the street and many more online that it is possible using digital technology to assist democracy and come to a shared understanding and for common demand,、uh, not one less, that got accepted by the head of the parliament. So that's a sea change. You're very much a global citizen. You were an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, so you've seen how other countries are dealing with this. Now we know that the role that technology is playing and can play in relation not just to helping us to manage a crisis like this, but also just to improving the quality of government and democracy and public services. Yet in many countries, there are big problems about the way technology is used. That it's not used effectively. It's not agile, and that people have suspicion towards government, towards large corporations. As you look around the world and you see so many other countries not getting it right, what do you think are the things that that they're getting wrong? I think just you know you frame like people not trusting the government as if it's a a problem. I think that's a frame that need to be challenged.、Uh, I think it's healthy for a citizen not to trust government or large corporations at that. I think the government should trust the citizens. The government should make itself transparent to the citizens, not asking citizens to be transparent to the state. And so this direction is very important. Even though in technology we say many of the same words, it matters which value those technologies are. Designed with, and if the government maximally trusts the citizens by making the decision-making process, including the drafting process, available to all citizens to participate, then of course some citizens trust back. But that is not the end goal. The end goal is to get people into the culture of listening to one another scalably and build trust between social sector players, and that is the true goal of open governance. And in that, Audrey, what about the role of the tech giants? Because one of the consequences of this crisis will be a further increase in consolidation of power in these corporations. Arguably, the most powerful, richest corporations the world has ever seen, and it is in some ways their behaviour, the power they have, which is part of what drives public suspicion and anxiety. Well, we have not rolled out any lab level like Bluetooth contact tracing tool in Taiwan. I'm not denying that these tools are potentially useful if they are open sourced and everybody jointly control the data, not random cloud storage companies. But it's very telling. 
that all the information, for example, about mask availability in Taiwan, you can go to the mask map and see which pharmacy near you and how much medical mask stock they have. And you go there and use your NHI card and get nine if you're an adult, ten if you're a child, and you can see after a couple of minutes, actually the stock of that level decreases in the map. And so it's real time accountability and a distributed ledger at that, and it's powered entirely by open source technology. The top map at the moment, every single line of it is open source. And so what this says is that the 100 and more application developers that use the same open API to develop this kind of shared ledger accountability apparatus know that they own the data and they curate the data and no over-concentrated big companies or the state can change the numbers behind their back. And everybody knows that they can hold each other to account if they see after purchasing nine masks from the map that they see the map increase in stock, they will call 1922 right there. And so I think a culture of people owning not only the technology, but also the know-how to build a strong social sector. I think that is the main difference. And that social norm will keep the multinational companies at bay, as we did during our previous presidential election, where the social norm was that all the campaign donation and expense are to be declared as raw open data for uh, investigative journalists and data scientists to analyze. And we just told Facebook and Google and friends and saying, you know, this is all social norm. We, we don't quite care what you do in honest advertisements acts in other jurisdictions, but this is Taiwanese norm. And if you do publish all your political advertisements during election as real-time open data, that's fine because it's conforming to the social norm, but otherwise you may face social sanction. And so Facebook changed their ways, published the ads library. Google and other friends simply refused to run the advertisements that's political in nature during our election. So that's a successful example. And this is not because I'm particularly good at semi-diplomacy to semi-sovereign entities, but rather the fact that Contrarian published this open data was the demand of the Sunflower occupiers. It was really the social norm. You talk, Audrey, there about the elections and you've talked already about democracy. What do you see as the role of technology in relation to renewing democracy? Because one of the other kind of issues we have to contend with around the world has been the loss of faith in democracy and the sense that representative democratic systems, which seek legitimacy simply through elections every few years, are simply not an adequate basis for legitimacy in the modern world. The bit rate is too low, right? It's like three bits every four years. I mean, voting. So I think democracy itself is a set of technologies. Democracy is social technology, and it improves as more people participate. And so digital technology remains one of the best ways to improve participation, as long as the focus on finding common ground and creating rough consensus. And so when you build, for example, the software that we use for participation, we use Polis, which is a automated clustering way to find common grounds among ideologically divisive people. Or we use the e-petition platform called join.gov.tw. The common thing between those technologies that we use, aside from that they're hosted locally and not part of the commercial cloud, is that it is actually about the taking away the reply button. If you take away the reply button and only have upvotes and downvotes and other ways to visualize the agreements and disagreements, then there is no room for troll to grow. And so this becomes a pro-social media rather than an anti-social media. And so the way that people interact with each other through technology matters. And so we call it always assistive intelligence, meaning that we do use some machine learning in this and also other you know AI tools, but it's always to assist democracy, not to artificial 
artificially change the way that the democracy is governed. You've mentioned a couple of times the sunflower movement, and again, I have to apologise for the parochialism of a British perspective, but there may be people who aren't aware of that. And I think it's really interesting because I think it's true also, isn't it, in South Korea that a few years ago there was a kind of pushback against a particular kind of type of more paternalistic or even authoritarian government, which, again, created the circumstances for a renewed and much stronger and enabling relationship between government and citizens. So tell us a little bit about that movement and where it came from. So the idea is that on March 18, 2014, hundreds of young activists, most of them college students, occupied Taiwan's legislature to express their profound opposition to a then-new trade pact with Beijing. At that time, it was under consideration, but in a very secretive manner. There was no public participation or daily press conferences, and it was being pushed through the parliament. And so the protester demanded that the pact to be scraped, and the government instituted a more transparent ratification process. And the which was co-chaired by like 20 different NGOs, drew widespread public support. It ended a little more than three weeks later after the government promised greater legislative oversight. And also, many NGOs at that time deliberated particular aspects of their CSSTA. For example, one particular side of the Occupy Parliament deliberated whether we need to allow PRC so-called market players into the infrastructure of the then new 4G infrastructure. So we had that debate in 2014 when we're doing the 4G infrastructure. And the result, the consensus was that we're not going to allow PRC components because there's no market player. It's de facto state-owned at any given time. And so that's why we built entire 4G infrastructure without any PRC components, where the PRC means the People's Republic of China regime. So it's fascinating that this is a political struggle, which is partly a political struggle about preserving the independence and sovereignty of Taiwan, but it's also about technology and about making sure that technology does not become a tool of control, but is instead a tool of enablement and participation. And, you know, that seems to me to be absolutely critical to success, that the politicization of technology is part of why it is that you've developed the kind of relationship that's enabled you to respond so brilliantly to the crisis. Exactly. And it's only when technology is built by the social sector, controlled by the social sector, supported but not taken over by the public sector or the private sector, can the people truly say that we own the technology, we're fine with using this technology to counter the coronavirus. And for example, I'll just use one example, aside from the important technology that is soap and alcohol, you know, sanitation sprays, which is the fundamental technology, we use a medical mask as a social signal to say that A, I am not touching my face, and B, I'm going to wash my hands properly. And this is social technology, because there's no top-down decree of any sort of on how to use soap to wash hands properly, and how those social signals should work. But instead of working on a more collectivist or altruistic incentive design, the social signal of a few people wearing a medical mask can prompt other people to take care of their own hand sanitation and no face touching and physical distancing rules work brilliantly. And social innovators then came to say, hey, we can use a traditional rice cooker to disinfect a facial mask. And that get amplified by the daily press conference where the minister tried to cook the mask himself and so on. And so the, the the point here is that everybody feel that they have a stake in improving our counter-coronavirus tactic because this is, after all, the 2.0. The playbook that we wrote during 1.0 may or may not work, and it takes the entire society to come up with the better response. 
So I think you referred to yourself earlier as an anarchist. Conservative anarchist. Conservative anarchist. And I think what's interesting is that one of the consequences of the crisis is going to be the state is going to be much larger and more significant, certainly during the period of economic recovery, and who knows how long that will last. And you've talked a lot about the role of government. My sense is that for you, the future is not really about the size of government or the role of government. It's about trying to, as it were, blur the boundary between governmental action and civic action. So in a sense, you dissolve the state by the state becoming part of the social sector rather than, as it were, simply ceasing to exist. Exactly. If we exercise no coercive action, because we've never declared a state of emergency, the constitutional democracy is intact. And so I think the reason why the CECC gets 94% of approval rating, I think not even many totalitarian leaders get that sort of approval rate, is because the CECC is simply reflecting to the civic sector what the social innovators does. And that's it. And there's no need of criminal penalty or anything like that for not washing your hands properly or not keeping the physical distance. The like intimate drink boss that was probably the only business that closed was not closed because of a coercive decree but rather that they could not figure out how to keep operating drinking liquor and beer while seeing you know, intimate escorts while keeping physical distance. So they closed for a while. But then after a, while, a social innovator came about and said, hey, if you wear a plastic shield in the front of your face, allowing sufficient room for drinking, then you can actually keep those intimate bars running. And so they reopened. Audrey, I could talk to you all day. You're an absolutely inspirational figure. But I'm going to ask you one more question because we're running out of time. And that is at the beginning, when I asked you the question about what could change after the pandemic, you talked about geopolitics and the possibility of greater global collaboration. One of the people I spoke to on this podcast early on the series was Kevin Rudd, a former prime minister of Australia. And, and Kevin's view was that both China and America will emerge from this crisis weakened. China weakened by its still murky role in relation to what happened at the beginning of the crisis and how it managed that. America, because it will once again have demonstrated its dysfunctionality and it will have massive economic problems. He referred to Ian Bremmer's concept, which is that we don't live in a G20 or a G7 world. We live in a G0 world because there is no global leadership. And Kevin's hope, and I would say it was no more than a hope, was that liberal democratic countries around the world would combine to develop a collective capacity in the face of China and America and the problems with both China and America. Do you hold out hope for the liberal democracies of the world to come together with an agenda around strengthening global collaboration, particularly with the challenge of climate change in mind? Definitely. If you check out the website, Taiwan can help that us. And which is, by the way, crowdfunded and crowdsourced. It's not the government website. It shows not only how our previous vice president, Chen Jianren, the top epidemiologist, recording a crash course on anti-COVID in multiple languages, but also how exactly Taiwan can help. And for example, the cross-industry collaboration that wherever you are, whenever you are, if you just give our medical mask producers a parcel of land, sufficient electricity supply, and so on, then we can churn out 24 hours a day, 2 million medical masks a day, or N95, uh, your call. And that's innovation, right? It's an is a innovation in smart industry for PPE production, which more and more liberal democracies realize that you need to 
basically keep the supply chain short for that sort of strategic supplies. And that's just one example. We can do more on rapid test antidotes and vaccines. And many of those gets discussed a few days before the World Health Assembly in a Taiwan-hosted minilateral meeting of 14 countries and economies. So not only do we think the global cooperation and training frameworks around this is thriving, we are building a lot of epicenter-to-epicenter relationships. Audrey, we normally end this program by asking people what they've done during lockdown, but I can't ask you that because Taiwan has achieved what it's achieved without having to resort to lockdown. All I can say is that I've rarely spent 25 minutes of my time being so inspired and somewhat, I have to say, humbled by what you've described to me and the vision that it provides for us. And I think our listeners, too, will be inspired and and hopefully will demand a little bit more from their government as we go forward. So, Audrey Tang, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Definitely. Taiwan can help and Taiwan is helping. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.